ID the Future, a podcast about evolution and intelligent design. Hello, this is Tom Gilson. Today on ID the Future, we hear portions of a question and answer session between Dr. Frank Turek and Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, author of the new book, Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. Meyer tackles questions from the history of science up to the present day and shows that there is really great reason to see a mind behind the realities of nature and the universe. You make a wonderful point in the book. Again, the book is called Return of the God Hypothesis. Steve, I wish I had read this book about four years ago because I had a debate with Michael Shermer and uh, someone from the audience said, well, you're using a, uh, a wrong analogy to say, uh, you know, when I was I was talking about how letters on a page correspond to letters in a uh, in a living thing. It's digital code and uh, or in a computer program. And he said something like, well, you all know that living things can reproduce themselves. And you make the point in the book that. Well, that's even more spectacular <laughs> that a living thing can reproduce itself. That seems to cry out for intelligence as well. Do you want to you want to comment? Well, on that? Th- th- this is an o- old argument that goes back to Hume and Paley. You know, yes. uh, David Hume supposedly refuted Paley before. Uh, but but Hume died in 1790, uh, 1779 and Paley made his famous argument in 1802. Uh-huh. But Paley was aware of of uh, of of Hume's argument and pointed out that uh, an organism was yes, it was like a watch, but it was even more uh, an even more marvelous artifact because it could it could reproduce itself. And there's a a whole um, strain of of technical literature around uh, self reproducing automata uh, that were uh, papers written by John van Neumann and others that are actually applicable to the origin of life problem. And uh, van Neumann and others have shown that. That uh, I mean, von Neumann's no longer with us, but a great genius of the 20th century, and he showed that the the uh, uh, self-replication had certain uh, irreducible minimum informational requirements that that put the the threshold of biological function very high indeed, far beyond again the realm of or the reach of chance or chance plus natural selection, as we've seen. So, uh, self-reproducing organisms require more information than human machines do. Last question before we go to video questions from our audience, Steve. This There's a real fascinating discussion that you have in this book, Return of the God Hypothesis, uh, that deals with the laws of nature being fine-tuned and sustained by God, because I personally think that that's a very good argument for a theistic God, that the laws of nature are fine-tuned and they're persistent and consistent, sort of gets into Aquinas's fifth way to argue for God. And you point out that there was kind of a, a dialogue or at least um, a back and forth between, I believe, Leibniz and Newton on this. Can you just unpack that in a couple it, of minutes? It's, a, it's an absolutely fascinating story. I did quite a bit of work on this in, in grad school in Cambridge. And of course, uh, uh, a lot of the uh, um, Newton was at Cambridge. I remember sitting outside his room, his old rooms in Trinity College during a, a break over the, the, the Christmas vac, as the Brits called it just trying to think his thoughts and get to the bottom of this, but it's fascinating. Here's the story. Um, Newton rejects the the uh, standard 
view of gravitation in his in his day, which was a vortex, a vortices theory that suggested that the gravity, the, the motion of the planets was produced by a swirling vortex of invisible ether, of physical stuff that we couldn't see, kind of like, um, you know, logs swirling in a whirlpool. And uh, he rejects that and instead uh, provided a very precise mathematical description of gravitational force, his famous inverse square law. But he also rejected the idea of, of the ether and that there was any pushing and pulling and, and essentially conceded that we had what is now called action at a distance, that the mass of the moon was affecting uh, events on planet Earth, the tides, for example, but there was no pushing and pulling. The moon doesn't touch the the, the mm -hmm. water in, in the tides, but it's affecting them and, and causing their movement. So there's attraction between massive bodies, but not because of any physical contact between the two. Now, Leibniz objected to this on the grounds that this was a return to uh, what were called occult properties. Uh, in the scholastic period, we would exp uh, the scholastics would explain things like um, the ability of of opium to put you to sleep by saying it had a dormitive virtue. Mm -hmm. uh, why, why, why does why does opium put you to sleep? Because it has a sleep inducing property. Uh, <laughs> what 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 the, the scholastics would do would rename they would rename the effect as its own cause and think uh -huh. that they had explained something, but. Leibniz said, isn't that what you're doing, Newton? Because, look, you're just saying, well, if we ask, why does do these massive bodies attract each other? You say, because they exert gravitational attraction. <laughs> uh, and and Newton says, well, that's not. I'm not doing just what the scholastics were doing. I'm describing this mathematically. But as to the cause, he said, hypothesis non fingo. I don't feign to know the cause. So he didn't posit a material cause for gravity. And Leibniz came back and said, well, if you're not doing what the scholastics were doing, you're not just naming it, and you're not saying you know the cause, uh, and you're not saying that there's a material interaction like the ether, then it must be, you must be making recourse to a perpetual miracle. You must be bringing God into science. And by, already by this time, there was a, an uneasiness about this, especially among people who are called the mechanical philosophers. Mm -hmm. And so, so Newton didn't want to cop to that accusation, and he, he deigned to inter interact with um, Leibniz through an intermediate intermediary named Sam, Samuel Clark, who's kind of his amanuensis, was, was the official person arguing with Leibniz. But then privately, in a correspondence with uh, Bishop Bentley, Newton acknowledged that actually what, that what he thought was exactly what, what Leibniz had accused him of, that he thought that gravity was, in the words of one of my Cambridge supervisors, a consequence of constant spirit action. And in mm -hmm. the general scolium to the Principia, uh, a theological epilogue, essentially a theological epilogue to the, the greatest work of physics ever written, the, 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 his Principia, in which he advanced the theory of universal gravitation. He, he paraphrased the passage from uh, Colossians talking about, in God, all things are held together. Yes. And so he viewed, he viewed gravitational force as a consequence of the constant action of the Spirit of God, mm -hmm. who was the divine regulator, if you will. We have the laws of nature, but then the divine legislator was on a moment-by-moment -moment basis maintaining the regular concourse of nature, which we describe as this lawful order. So mm -hmm. Newton had a profound, this was not so much an argument, uh, a natural theological argument for God. It was a, a theological interpretation of the science, more a theology of nature, but it's a profound uh, it approach is. to science. And Newton was a very deep thinker about all these things. 
and I, one of my Cambridge supervisors told me, you know, um, this problem really hasn't been solved to this day because we replaced Newton's version of occult forces, uh, you know, action at a distance with Einstein's idea that matter is curving space. That's what causes gravity, that you have these these preferred lines of trajectory around, around massive bodies. But space is empty. Space isn't a physical thing. And somehow its curvature is what causes motion. And then, and then more recently with string theory and other, other ideas in, in contemporary physics, we have the idea of gravitons. But gravitons aren't pushers. They're pullers. They're attractors. And they're massless. So it's, you know, the, the fundamental forces of physics are things that happen in a regular way, which we can describe with precise mathematics. But the forces themselves are things that occur. We know not why. We don't really in fact, have. A in fact, you go on in the book, and we don't have time to get into it now. You really, you can, folks, really need to get the book. But then you talk about how people like Hawking and even Alexander Vilenkin are saying, "Who puts the?" Well, Hawking says, "Who puts the fire into these equations?" I mean, math itself doesn't cause things, but why do these laws do what they do? Are these forces? Well, th this is a, this is the the, the last three. Uh, well, this the, the last section of the book deals with this alternative cosmological model known as quantum cosmology, which physicists have proposed to get around the problem of the singularity of the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh, Hawking famously popularized this in his book, A Brief History of Time, in 1988. And uh, what I show is that this this uh, alternative model of cosmology. Uh, first of all, it doesn't actually get rid of the beginning. It's pre If you get into, not the popular work, but you get into the technical papers, the singularity is presupposed in all the quantum cosmological mm -hmm. models. But what these models attempt to do is to invoke the uh, mathematical apparatus of quantum, quantum mechanics, which deals with the physics of the very small and the very weird. And it uses that mathematical apparatus to try to explain the origin of the universe when it would have been very, very small um, but invariably, what happens is that you need math. The math of quantum mechanics must precede the origin of a, of a physical universe. And so the, the physicists who have proposed this, Alexander Vilenkin in particular, very perceptive intellect, um, uh, says, well, what tablet could these laws of quantum gravity have been written on, mm -hmm. given that there's no matter, space, time, or energy. We're trying to explain the origin of those things That's right. with the math. So the math must precede the material universe. And then uh -huh. he says, "Are we?" but math is something that's conceptual. It always exists in a mind. Are we therefore saying that a mind precedes the universe? But and he doesn't he, answer it, does he? He leaves that rhetorical question hanging. <laughs> Hawking says very much the same thing. He says, what puts fire in the equations that gives yeah. them a universe to describe? And so I argue that this attempt to get around the singularity with quantum uh, cosmology actually presupposes a prior mind, um, a mind prior to the universe, and so it, it has its own theistic implications. Anyway, yeah. sorry, right, let's go. We're keeping a, a, a good questioner on. on uh, <laughs> right, yeah, right, right. We got, we got Tom Tommy in. On. Tommy's ready to come on. Hey, Tommy, where are you? Hi, uh, I'm from Chicago. Chicago, so, you're in the Windy City. Okay, you're missing the Blackhawks right now. You're getting all the hockey states fire. asking questions tonight. Yeah, this hey, is great. I don't watch sports. I just sit here and read Steve's books for fun. Oh, good. <laughs> hey, I, I, we got to get, listen, this is what, why he deserves this. That's right. Go ahead. Ask away, Tommy. Go ahead. Cool. So I'm a biology education major right now, um, and I've been talking to my professors a lot about what I've been reading uh, in your book, in Signature in the Cell, and um, my professor keeps bringing up the idea of the RNA world, and we're talking about ribozymes and stuff, and um, even in Signature in the Cell, you talk about how some some uh, 
atheists might say that, you know, if we look back at the early Earth and when life originated, that there's a bunch of these dice rolls that just happen in the right spot. And, you know, chance just that that small chance just happens. Um, how, how would I answer someone that says, you know, what if we happen to get the perfect RNA molecule that just happened? You know, it was unlikely, but it happened. How, how would we how would we def- how would we defend well, I, I, I direct you to, I think it was chapter 14 in Signature in the Cell. I have a whole chapter critiquing the RNA world. Mm-hmm. I'll give you a couple of the most important critiques in my answer in just a sec, but I'd also direct you to some of the videos that are online with Professor James Tour from Rice University, mm-hmm. who has been doing essentially a chemical accounting of these uh, origin of life scenarios, many of which are RNA world scenarios. Uh, showing that um, that what's involved in in even the most uh, rudimentary simulations where we get some of the subunits of life relevant molecules is an immense amount of intelligent design. You have to start with purified reagents. You have to heat them up to certain temperatures in combinations with other chemicals that you also purchase off the shelf. You have to. Uh, um, you have to stop the reactions at the right point. You have to remove unwanted byproducts so you don't get interfering cross reactions. You have to introduce new things at just the right time and just the right temperature. You've got a complex, intelligently designed chemical recipe involved in all these so-called prebiotic simulation experiments. So what are you actually simulating? I argue you're actually simulating the need for intelligent design. But now to the RNA world hypothesis. The idea of the RNA world was the idea that uh, it was was it was initially formulated to address a really naughty problem in original life research. It turns out you need proteins to process the information on the DNA molecule, but you need information on DNA to 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 produce proteins. So how do you ever get that chicken and egg system going? Well, it was proposed that there might be a molecule that RNA might solve the problem because RNA does perform some limited catalytic activity that is analogous to what pro- the, the functions that that enzymes perform. Uh, turns out, though, it's merely analogous. It doesn't really do all the things that en- enzymes do. And it also stores information like DNA. So the thought was, well, maybe you could have a molecule that could store information and perform catalytic slash enzymatic function at the same time. And if you got one of those molecules Uh, a a complex enough RNA molecule arose that could copy itself, then you could get some differential reproduction and bingo, you'd get a prebiotic natural selection process going. Well, just analyzing that from an information standpoint, there's a huge problem. And that is that in our experimental work, the ribozyme engineering it's called, and the engineering is really what's going on because there's intelligent guidance to this. But but ribozyme engineers have engineered Uh, RNA molecules that can copy a portion of themselves, about 10%, but not the whole thing, but only if they precisely sequence the bases, the the information-carrying subunits on the RNA molecule. So only very specific RNAs with very specific sequences are capable of this limited self-replication, but only if there's information there first. And in all the simulations, the information is coming from intelligence. There's too much there to arise by chance. And because because there's no natural selection at work, it would have to be a purely random search to find those sequences. So chance is implausible on probabilistic grounds. 
natural selection isn't yet a, a, a factor, and the simulations themselves show the need for intelligent design. So that's just one of many problems with the with the RNA world hypothesis. So to get more, read the chapter 14 in Signature in the Cell and look up Dr. Tour. He's he's stripping the bark off of these guys, and they they know it and don't like it because he is he's one of the top organic synthesis chemists in the world, and he's he's saying, look, guys, this does not work chemically. You're, the the the, the, the chemistry does not do what you want it to do or what would be required of it to produce life from an inorganic uh, chemical uh, substrate. Tommy, how, how do you think your professor would answer the question, uh, what evidence do you have that some sort of natural force can produce information? What would um, he I, say? Yeah, I actually asked him that question and um, I, I took one of your classes just recently and you told me a similar thing and said, uh, because I go to a Christian school, um, and mm -hmm. he would he would hold to um, theistic evolution, which I know you and Dr. Meyer have talked about before. Um, and I, and so I asked him, when do you think God intervened? And he just says, I don't know, but I know God did it, so he did it somehow. Okay, so he is he's that's a form of intelligent design. Then he's right. Yeah. <laughs> he just doesn't know where God has intervened. Now, Steve, you've written. In fact, I have the book up here. Uh, you've written a, a, a you or contributed to a, a really a well-done book on theistic evolution. Do you want to just explain a little bit what's in here if people wanted to get into that? Well, what, one of the things that, uh, you know, the, 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 your professor's uh, response is very typical of a lot of professors at, at Christian colleges who have accepted the basic framework of evolutionary thinking. They want to somehow merge it with their theistic worldview. They don't really know how to do that, so they... They accept the, the the full Darwinian or chemical evolutionary framework and then say God was somehow behind it or involved with it. And a, a key question to ask folks who are thinking that way is, when, well, when you, when you say you're a theistic evolutionist, do you believe the evolutionary process is guided or unguided? And often they'll get very quiet and say, I don't know. But it, it, once they say, I don't know, what you realize they're saying is that I don't really have a model. Uh, my concept of theistic evolution, it, it isn't an, an explanation about what happened. It's not a theory. It's just uh, uh, a kind of generic affirmation that somehow God is there doing what we're not sure, when we don't know. And I, I don't, at some level, the, the idea of theistic evolution lacks enough, it lacks specificity as, as a concept, and therefore, I really think you need to set it aside. It's not really relevant to the discussion until it, it, it provides some specific idea about what God did, when, and how that affected nature. Um, there are some theories like that. One is the front-end loaded idea of design, that God put all the information in at the beginning and then let nature run its course, uh, kind of like the analogy is often given of a billiards player who makes one shot and makes all the balls go into the holes. He, God did it all at the beginning. I take that that's a hypothesis that has enough specificity that can be evaluated and critiqued. And I do that in the new book, Return of the God Hypothesis, because if you were a deist, there aren't many deists left over uh, or still around. But if you were, that's the kind of idea you would have about how the, uh, how living systems arose. And it turns out to be implausible for a whole bunch of scientific reasons, one of which is that the intense heat 
of the uh, plas early plasma universe would have destroyed or would have prevented any accumulation of information in something like a DNA molecule. We don't even get atoms till 380,000 years after the beginning of the universe. Um, but there's also the Humpty Dumpty problem we were talking about before. It turns out that if you have all the nucleotide bases that you need to form a DNA molecule and all the sugar in the phosphate uh, subunits as well in a friendly aqueous solution or whatever, um, that will not give you a specific arrangement of bases. The, the, the forces of attraction between those subunits will not determine any specific arrangement. Um, and therefore, they don't explain, uh, even if you had all the subunits, that will not account for the origin of the information that specific DNA molecules uh, hold. So if, the, if the, those biologically relevant subunits don't have the information, then certainly the information didn't exist in the elementary particles that existed soon after the Big Bang. So there's a number of scientific problems with front-end loaded um, theistic evolution. And beyond that, uh, the concept usually is pretty fuzzy. So. Awesome. That makes sense, Tommy. Oh yeah, totally makes sense. I, I'm happy to go question them now. When I have class. Well, that's the key question. Do you think it's guided or unguided? And mm. some will say it's guided. If they do, you say, "Well, welcome to intelligent design." That's a form of intelligent design. <laughs> if they say it's not guided, it was you know God just is watching the process passively, and nature is doing it all. That's not quite deism because many theistic evolutionists will say that God is upholding the laws of nature. But it's it, it certainly it, it it certainly affirms a diminished form of divine sovereignty that God is not an active creator but rather a passive spectator. I think that has theological problems. It also has um, has some um, some uh, scientific problems because the the, the 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 evolutionary process lacks creative power for for other reasons. And we get into this in the theistic evolution book. We provide a philosophical, theological, and scientific critique of the concept running to a thousand pages other than the thousand pages we think it's a great theory <laughs> yeah, awesome yeah Thanks. I think the, key, the key thing that I, I i got from this was um when you said you know when we have all of these i don't knows and stuff you know when we talk about the inference to the best explanation it just seems like we're in a place where it would probably be better to set aside till we find out it's not else. An, it's not an explanation it's right. merely it's merely a, a a concept that we're proposing to kind of give us a place to stand i mean it's a it's a, it's an attempt to reconcile bill craig said this in a debate we or it was a kind of panel discussion and bill was sort of in the middle of the theistic evolutionists and the id people and he said well the thing about theistic evolution is it's not really a theory it's a strategy for reconciling science and faith but it's one that, that I think lacks enough, it doesn't have enough specificity to really be relevant to trying to understand what happened in the history of life, which is what we all really want to know about. So um, it, it's not specific enough to be critiqued oftentimes. Thank you so much, Tommy. We appreciate the question and appreciate your study in biology. So Stay close to the Discovery Institute and uh, Stephen's website, and uh, you'll be in good shape. Hey, you, you might consider applying to our summer seminar as well. Uh, shoot us an email, and uh, you're exactly the sort of person we love to work with. So we have a 10-day summer intensive here in Seattle. So, yeah. Awesome. Thank Get you. Yeah, very good. And it's it's not in the autonomous zone. It's in the safe part of Seattle, right, Steve? Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> If you're going to be an ID person, you got to step out and uh, you know, take some risks sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, we're not doing it in chat or whatever that was. All right, so, all right. Yeah.
Thank you so much, Tommy. We appreciate it. Hey, Steve, it's been a joy having you on, and you're always a wealth of great information. So I, I want people to make sure they go out and get Return of the God Hypothesis. It's in Kindle. It's in hardcover. It's um, Steve, what do you have on your website? You have said you have some videos on your website about this oh, as well. Oh, well, we're posting videos of media appearances. I did a long interview with Peter Robinson, who wrote the wonderful Mr. Gorbachev tear down this wall speech for Ronald Reagan. Uh -huh. He's got a great program called Uncommon Knowledge, and uh, that's up on the website. So we're posting. Uh, we'll be posting the interviews that I did with you on radio. Uh, but the, the, from the web website, you can navigate to the website to the other books. We've got a YouTube channel connected to the Darwin's Doubt website that has all the media appearances, the debates I've done, the animations of molecular machines. We even have a playlist for uh, intelligent design and song and verse. There are people that <laughs> do. We've got rappers and uh, slam poets and other people who've picked up Ooh. intelligent design themes. So we've got a lot of stuff on the website for people who want to get into the subject of what does science tell us about design in the universe and the designer and so forth. So yeah, return to the God hypothesis.com or uh, just remembering my name, Stephen C org. And if you get to those places, you can navigate to a lot of good content. All right, folks, check that out. Return to the God hypothesis.com or Stephen C org. And don't forget, you can go to Amazon right now and get this. You can have this in about 10 seconds if you get the Kindle version. And as I say, it's not just a science book, it's a history book, too, about the history of science and how we've gone from thinking God was the cause to not and now back again because of these three major discoveries. So check it all out. That was Dr. Stephen C. Meyer, author of Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries that Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe, being interviewed by Dr. Frank Turek with a brief appearance by producer George Gill. In a video appearance first aired on Dr. Turek's cross-examined video channel. Stay tuned to ID the Future for more great conversation on nature, science, philosophy, theism, and intelligent design. And please do us the favor of giving us a high rating on your podcast app of choice. It does us so much good in helping get the word out on intelligent design. For ID the Future, I'm Tom Gilson. Thank you for listening. Visit us at idthefuture.com and intelligentdesign.org. This program is Copyright Discovery Institute and recorded by its Center for Science and Culture.